Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And on today's episode, we are making good on a promise made by my guest today and his co-author some about a year ago. They started this book at the eve, just on the eve of the Bernie Sanders wave in 2019-2020, following on the heels of his electrifying campaign for the Democratic Party primary race in 2016. We knew that this moment would come. The Democratic Socialist Movement has been chomping at the bit. We have been stamping our feet in the dirt. We've been waiting for that start gate to drop for quite some time, and we're in the thick of it. Things are not looking good, admittedly, for our boy Bernie Sanders, but all hope is not lost. We're in the middle of this COVID-19 crisis, and it's anybody's guess as to how this thing will shake out. So joining me on the program today is one of the authors of that book, that has been long promised. It is finally going to be released this week. It is available for purchase at Verso. We'll give you some links in the show description, of course, to check that out. Joining us today to talk about Bigger Than Bernie, how we go from the Sanders campaign to democratic socialism is Micah Utrecht. Micah, thanks for coming back on DPS. Glad to be here, Adam. And I don't know if you remember that not only did we promise we'd be back, but I broke the news of the book on your yes. show a year ago. Yeah, that, that was uh, I would say that's that's like the first exclusive and, the, and probably the only ever exclusive that we're going to get here on DPS. We're not we're not a cutting edge current events show, but you did. I think it was by accident, but I appreciate it. it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate it nonetheless. I mean, I'll take credit for it. It's fine. You heard it here, folks. Cutting edge exclusives on DPS. Uh, yeah, your co-host, of course, is Megan Day. She's been on the show several times. Always brilliant. Uh, not able to join us today. She's got a lot of things going on with her excellent reporting on the coronavirus crisis. So, I mean, look, we're going to be talking about Bernie. We're going to be talking about the fate of the democratic socialist movement, how to go beyond Bernie Sanders, the man, right? Uh, but we we can't ignore what's going on around us right now. Like, uh, how you doing? How you holding up, man, in the midst of this uh, corona thing? Well, I have to say, uh, not that great. I got a roommate with Corona symptoms who's quarantined in his room, uh, making life a little difficult in the apartment. I also, I had, you know, unrelated to Corona, I had knee surgery two weeks ago. And so I still can't really walk. (sighs) What'd you get done? What'd you get done? I have an extensive history of knee surgeries in my family. We're like half orthopedic surgeons, like honorary. I had a, uh, Oh, God. No, I can't even remember what it's called. So a release. Something was released. <laughs> and I had a torn meniscus. Okay. So, uh, you know, pretty common surgeries, but it's taken me a couple of weeks to uh, recover. But it's not like I got anywhere to go. So it's, it's, timing's not be, terrible. Yeah, if I'm going to be laid up, this is the time to be laid up. Yeah, I mean, that meniscus is a pain in the ass, man. It's, yeah. it's painful. Like a little tiny tear or injury in the meniscus can cause you a lot of problems. So, hey, uh, heal up. Take this time off your feet. Get that physical therapy in. Uh, you know, I myself, I've had a cough. I've talked about this a little bit on the show, not too much, but I've had a cough for about 14 days and I started having symptoms about, oh, let's say 19, 20 days ago. So whatever it was, I didn't get a test because I'm not an NBA basketball player or a rich guy, like a super rich guy. Uh, so of course I didn't qualify for a test, but uh, I hope that all the listeners out there, I hope you all are staying healthy and cool, calm and collected as is possible in the midst of, you know, all of this fuckeration that's going on. It's hard to not, it's hard to not succumb to panic attacks on the daily with some of this news. 
Um, what are your just off the cuff? What are your thoughts about our boy Bernie's performance thus far? He gave a couple impassioned speeches on the floor of the Senate. I think that were in some senses decisive. There are a lot of progressive and liberal pundits who are pushing back on us, social, we socialists who are, you know, who are championing that victory saying, wow, Bernie had nothing to do with that. He didn't win that. Uh, again, that's like suggesting that, uh, you know, Mayo Pete came up with Medicare for all or something like that, like completely ignoring the role of the kind of moral and ethical force that a guy like Bernie Sanders carries in our political scene today. How do you rate his performance in the crisis so far? Yeah, it's not a very Marxist term, but watching Bernie's performance, you have to say that it's uh, almost presidential in how he has really led the response. I mean, it, obviously, it's such a marked contrast to what Biden is doing. My God, like the guy disappears for a week in the worst of the explosion of the pandemic. And then when he reenters the public stage, it's like embarrassing to watch. Like I, I literally cannot watch some of these clips of him going on MSNBC or doing live streams because I'm just so embarrassed for him versus Bernie, who's doing these live streams all the time, who's doing the speeches from the floor of the Senate, as you mentioned. I mean, if if the shoe were on the other foot and, you know, Bernie was hiding and, and Biden was rising to the occasion like this, we would hear trumpeted from all quarters of mainstream media that, you know, uh, in crisis, Biden emerges as presidential or something like that. And yet, uh, because it's Bernie, we'll never hear that from the the mainstream media. But I mean, he is really clearly playing a leadership role. And it's, it's pretty instructive to think about what our public conversation would look like if it wasn't for him being, uh, you know, speaking out the way he is, as well as the people who he's helped inspire who are now in office like AOC and Alon Omar, uh, you know, they're part of that pushback too, or, or on the local level in Chicago, where we've got half a dozen socialist city council members, there putting forward a right to recovery package that includes things like, you know, ma- uh, demanding mandatory sick leave and whole host of other progressive measures. So to think about where we would be in this crisis right now without Bernie and the left elected officials that he's helped inspire would be pretty bleak. Yeah, it's, it's just unbelievably it's just it's an abuse of the English language or abuse of logic at this point to claim, you know, at any at any rate that some of the most progressive worker centered you know, policies, even if they don't come from the lips of our boy Bernie himself or from his pen. Right. That they aren't inspired by that movement. It's just it's poppycock is what it is. That's the nicest thing I have to say. Now, Micah, I don't know about you, but I stopped watching movies after 1996. <laughs> so all of my movie references uh, come from the greatest movie of all time. Uh, it's one, one, a movie called a film, if you will. I don't like to call it a movie. It denigrates the greatness of this, a film, uh, it's called independence day. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. <laughs> I'm familiar. Yeah. So in the great, uh, the great film independence day, uh, you know, I think many of us, I, I take all my political references from that movie as well, by the way, cause I don't really pay attention to politics. Uh, I think we all sort of expected, I mean, not, we all, not, not, us, not we socialists, the mainstream, right. They, they expected to see like, like a Jeff Goldblum-esque kind of Bernie Sanders emerge in this crisis, right. All disheveled, you know, kind of freaking out, you know, uh, talking about millions and billions of this and that, right. You know, sort of warning the world in any sort of like eccentric sort of way. But instead what we've seen is a very like, uh, Bill Pullman-esque version of Bernie Sanders, very like a movie crisis presidential appearing, right? And on TV, giving his fireside chats, being a a kind of a a beacon of hope and like sanity for the people who are going to be 
losing out the most. I don't know if that's stuck at all. Oh yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's right. And really how he's acting right now is not that different from how he's been the whole campaign. I mean, studying the career trajectory, the career arc of somebody like him, you, you really are struck by the incredible extent to which he has not changed over time. That that he is the most unflappable person in uh, the history of American politics, maybe. And even the worst uh, pandemic we've seen in a century is not fundamentally changing, is not uh, throwing him off his game. He's not going into an underground bunker and hiding uh, in the way that Biden is. I mean, or has. Uh, he's he's out there and he's the same Bernie we, as we've always, always known. It's a, a level of discipline that we should all aspire to as socialists. And as you and uh, Megan Day write in your book, it's it's quite predictable. Of course, you couldn't have predicted the, the coronavirus crisis in this book, but his behavior is predictable if you look at the, the long arc of his his career and his personality. And you, know, you guys open the book with a series of questions. And these are the questions that should be really guiding socialists right now, you know, in and beyond the latest crisis. And they are, what lessons should we draw from the Bernie Sanders moment? And how can we take all of the energy that his candidacies have generated to build a movement that is bigger than a presidential candidate, bigger than a few dozen newly elected socialist representatives, and bigger than anything the U.S. left has seen in decades? So, you know, hence the title, Bigger Than Bernie. Tell us a little bit about how you conceptualized, you know, not not just the title of the book, but also kind of the framing of the book. Of course, it sounds like you guys were weary at the outset that you this was just going to be kind of like a hagiographic, like, you know, um, hailing of the greatness of this man falling prey thus to the kind of Bernie bro, you know, personality cult smears that come from liberal and some progressive centers. But you guys aspire to more than that. Tell us about that. Well, what is unique about Bernie as an American political figure is not that he is you know, a little bit more progressive than your average Democrat. Like there's a, you know, a spectrum and the average Democrat is, you know, this far left of the spectrum and Bernie just goes a little bit further. Uh, Bernie Sanders himself, the way that he has run his presidential campaign has been to insist that Bernie Sanders himself does not matter without the creation of a broader movement beyond him. I mean, that's the whole idea behind the not me us slogan for his campaign, right? So uh, he is proposing a way of doing politics that is different, even from what we've come to accept as an average progressive, quote unquote, politician uh, in, in, you know, elected office somewhere. Um, and so we're not really proposing anything that is substantively different or talking about the need for something that's substantively different than what Bernie himself uh, says that we need in this country. Uh, Bernie is often pretty vague on that question. He's, it's not like he's directing people to go join an organization like the Democratic Socialists of America or 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 much of anything else. Um, but that's probably because he's running a presidential campaign right now. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we're sort of taking him at his word and we're, we're trying to run with his, his example, uh, you know, and we talk in the book about both like what we have learned from his two campaigns uh, and then also how we build that movement that he says that we need. And so I think that it's very clear what we've learned from his campaign is something that is shocking even to somebody like me who has been a socialist for you know, half my life, for you know a decade and a half or more. Uh, I, you know, I'm an editor at Jacobin, a socialist magazine. I was involved in radical activism before I came to Jacobin. 
I've been a radical of, of one stripe or another for a long time, but I realized recently that even though I am a radical, I did not believe that my politics would ever have mass purchase in the United States because I believed that what we're always told about radical socialist politics in the United States, that the American people are just fundamentally conservative, right? We always hear that we're a fundamentally center-right nation, uh, that the socialism stuff is scary, that people will be put off by it. You can't call yourself a socialist. So the best you can maybe do is, you know, you can be a socialist. I think Bill Fletcher, the uh, labor organizer and educator, once said that, you know, socialism can be something that you, it's like a, you have a shrine to it in your home where you can sort of do your private praying to it or whatever. When you go out in public, you better not let anybody know that that's what, that's what you actually think. Um, and Bernie showed us that that is not true, that our politics, at least in the broadest strokes, actually do have mass resonance in American society. And we can get millions of people behind those politics as long as we're framing them in the right way. And the obvious examples are things like Medicare for all or free college, free public college for all, uh, which, as your listeners probably know, are now wildly popular demands. Even some polls show that majorities of Republicans support things like Medicare for all. So obviously, we have a long way to go to actually win those things. And that's what the piece about building the movements to build those things is about. But just in terms of winning people over to that agenda, winning average Americans over to that agenda, uh, we are winning those battles. And so we should you know, not be uh, ashamed or afraid to uh, loudly proclaim our politics. You know, it's, we don't have to do the kind of uh, private, uh, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not socialists in private anymore. We can be socialists in public uh, and, and we're not going to scare people off. It's it's astonishing. I mean, we do have to take a trip down memory lane. Like, you know, you and I aren't that old. We both entered kind of like radical left politics around the same time. And, um, but, you know, the people who, who are out there who, who have decades and decades on us, you know, in some cases, 40, 50 years on us, uh, a head start, if you will. They've, they've eaten a lot more shit than we have down, oh, yeah. down the road, you know, no question. Even though we, we ate quite a bit of shit, you know, early on, but not yeah. nearly as much as some of them. And uh, but yet it's still important to kind of like remind even ourselves of this. Definitely the listeners who haven't been around quite that long, perhaps. Uh, but but even ourselves, like I think like the real benefit of this up and coming generation of socialists and you don't you know you always talk about the youths and the way the kids are going to save us and you know the way that 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 has fall we've fallen prey to that you know generation after generation but without falling prey to kind of a, a simplistic vulgar notion of that like one of the benefits of of the youths coming up the way they are now is that they didn't have to they didn't ever have to sort of survive in hiding the way that we did and so they just had this very knee-jerk awareness that well yeah fuck yeah bernie sanders and socialism and all that stuff is cool like why wouldn't it be you know where I, I mean, I mean, come on, Mike. I mean, level with me and my audience here. Let's 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 go deep. I'll be the first to admit it. Okay, I'm a podcast host. I'm a semi-public figure to a small and mostly brain damaged audience. <laughs> like I live this shit in ways that a lot of people, you know, like don't or they're not blessed to live it the way that I do. And certainly you, even more so, as a managing editor of the biggest socialist publication in the world right now. Um, you know, and yet. Like, I'm sure you're just like me, where in certain social settings, it's still a little bit uncomfortable at times to be as out and proud about your socialism as maybe like you could be given the moment. Like, I'll find myself kind of tampering down, tamping down some of the things, trying to sort of triangulate and sort right. of massage soft the pedaling. message, soft pedal the message to people that I meet. And then I find they're, they're like, you know, they'll start throwing things back at me they're like 10 times more radical than the thing that I just said. <laughs> 
And I'm like, oh, shit. Like, expropriate the expropriators and, you know, uh, and forgive all debts. Like, oh, shit. Yeah, I'm down with that, too. Oh, by the way, I'm actually a socialist. I don't know why I was just saying, like, that soft liberal shit a second ago. You know, like, it's – yeah, I'm sure you've ha- – have you had that that kind of experience and have you seen, like, a difference in, in the, the Gen Z types? Well, that's definitely true about the Gen Z types. And I had an experience related to this a couple weeks ago, right before the – uh, pandemic exploded. I went to the Grand Rapids, Michigan rally for Bernie, where he was endorsed by Reverend Jesse Jackson. And I lived in Grand Rapids for two years. I'm from West Michigan, and I went to school there for two years. And it was the the rally was in this uh, the huge plaza in downtown Grand Rapids, the Calder Plaza. And I was there, and I was looking around, and there's like eight or nine thousand people there who were there for Bernie Sanders in this very conservative region of the country uh you know the home of the devosses and the van andals and all so many like right-wing uh just ghouls who come from west michigan and so there's eight or nine thousand people there and you know they're they're people are spitting some pretty radical shit from the the mic and people are really fired up about it. and i was thinking about how it was, i was steps from where i had attended numerous protests against the iraq war at the height of the bush years and I would the protest would be with like a dozen, fifteen people. If we had like twenty people, we were like feeling good. You totally know? Just, yeah. And I, I specifically I remembered like uh Bush was speaking in Grand Rapids at one point and we organized a protest and you know, for one thing we had like a dozen people, but the, for the other thing, I was an anarchist at that point and we were just doing weird shit. Like we we like had the idea that we would do a noise block against Bush. And so we were like just like banging on instruments, uh, just being and I, I played the trombone, so I had my trombone and I'm like just being like <laughs> and, and you know, just like I was thinking about that, you know, however long ago that was, sixteen, seventeen years ago, versus now when I'm in this plaza with eight, nine thousand people and you know Jesse Jackson is endorsing Bernie and like there there's a real mass audience for our politics that p- even people who are just a generation behind Gen Z the millennials like we really <laughs> we went through some shit and as you said we, millennials went through nothing like compared to what people who kept the flame alive through the 80s and 90s through Reagan and through Clinton and all the rest of it so uh it it you know you don't want to do just empty generational politics but it is definitely true that Gen Z is just ready for the stuff in a way that even millennials are still a little uh, reticent about, you know, being out and proud about our socialism. And thank God, like it makes me feel uh, pretty hopeful for the future. Not just that there's a mass base of, of uh, people who are ready to c- carry these politics forward, but that they understand a way to do mass politics in a way that somebody like me who came up when anarchism was dominant on the American left. Uh, I, you know, they, the Gen Z folks are not going to be doing a noise block against, uh, you know, Donald Trump. And thank God for that. Yeah. None of them are subscribers to ad busters. That's for sure. <laughs> right. All of my Gen Z audience just said, ad what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I sort of had my adventurous moments, but my first like organized socialist moments like happened 10 to 15 years ago. And I remember how jazzed up we would be in our weekly meeting when some 
like random newbie would walk in on the street. Like one yeah. guy, like one guy saw a flyer at the bus stop or whatever and just wandered into the room and like all 12 of us would just be so fucking amped. We'd be talking about, oh my God, can you believe that like one guy showed up? You know, like, and uh, yeah, I mean, I had a similar experience in my town, you know, my city where we had a big Bernie rally and you're just walking around just like, who the fuck are these people? Yeah. And how did they yeah. find out about socialism? They must have seen a flyer at the bus stop. That must have been <laughs> what it was. <laughs> Well, and, you know, it's uh, it feels really good, but it's also a reminder for us and for everyone to, like, we should not go back to those old days. Like, we can choose not to go back to those old days. You know, even if the the Bernie campaign, his second campaign loses, uh, you know, we can make the choice to continue doing mass politics and not go back to those uh, fringe days. I mean, some of it is out of our control, but uh, other parts of it are within our control if we continue to you know, pitch our politics in a way that can actually have a mass audience. Yeah, no doubt. And that's a perfect segue to, to the thing. next thing I wanted to talk about here to get into some of the meat of the book. I talked about this extensively with my guest last week, Mike McCarthy, a good co- comrade of both of ours, writes for Jacobin quite a bit. And, um, you know, you guys are obviously co-thinkers in a lot of ways, and we're all thinking through the same questions together. And God bless Jacobin, and God bless this kind of like, uh, you know, this new like budding like wave of like fellow travelers, you know, because it it used to be – it was very lonely for a time. (laughs) It's very lonely for a lot of people for a time to push the kind of politics that are now like commonsensical, you know. Um, and, and the concern that we sort of addressed was that like where we go next is going to be really crucial. And I think it's not a given that like the obvious nature of some of these tactics and strategies and and ways of framing, uh, you know, democratic socialism, it's not a given that they will be durable after, you know, after the Bernie wave, you know, I mean, it's not a given that, that our sort of the nuanced critique and and like wielding of electoral politics in the way that you guys break down in this book, we're going to get to explicitly in just a moment. It's not inevitable that that kind of inside outside or, you know, the, 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 the dirty versus the clean break, as you guys uh, characterize it. It's not inevitable that that will survive on the broad left, that, that af- if Bernie Sanders is marginalized by the Democratic Party establishment, that we somehow then revert back to more kind of sectarian, more abstentionist ways of doing politics and you know, I think people like us and listeners out there, like we need to start playing defense, like preemptive defense, and uh, and and sort of um, you know the word that comes to mind is inoculate. I've talked about inoculation on this show, capitulation, inoculation, <laughs> which is just a nice little play on words in terms of we need to inoculate the left and 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 people who are interested in this moment against this idea that you know. Ah, well, see, the Democratic Party is always going to do this and there's just no hope in electoral politics. And, you know, I don't ever want to go back to a church basement, Micah. (laughs) And those of you who know will know. I don't have to explain myself. I don't ever want to fucking go back to a church basement with with eight to ten of the same faces week after week, like reading Dusty Marx and Lenin. Although, you know, the Marx and Lenin is pretty dope. That's pretty tight. I enjoyed that a lot. But uh, I don't want to go back. And so just maybe just really quickly, what are your thoughts on on the kind of precipice that we find ourselves on right now? Do you do you see that danger or, or am I being a little oh, bit yeah. like a little bit hyper emotional and histrionic as usual? No, I think that <laughs> this is a real worry. But I also think that we people should take a step back. And of course, it's if 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 it is indeed Bernie uh, loses uh, the nomination, which he's is looking like is probably likely 
right now. That'll be crushing to all of us, obviously. But we should take a step back and remember where we were, you know, less than five years ago, which was like no democratic socialists of America. Uh, you know, Jacobin's readership was was extremely low. Socialist ideas were not in the mainstream in the way that they are becoming now. And what what is it? The anomaly is not. Bernie, for a time, looking like he might actually become the Democratic nominee and then then ended up ending up losing. The anomaly is that we have been moving at such warp speed in the last four years that we have seen a, basically a transformation of American politics over the past four years to the point where socialism went from being anathema and, you know, people is still sort of anti-communist ways of talking about uh, socialism, red baiting ways of talking, or not even red baiting, just socialism wasn't discussed in mainstream media versus now where we are a constant presence, uh, in, even in mainstream publications. I mean, even if the mainstream publications feel like they have to shut down our ideas, that's a good sign. It shows that they see our ideas as relevant and vital and, and something that they need to mobilize to shut us down. So just in terms of a, a kind of a long or even medium term movement building, we are in incredible shape. And I don't just say that to try to make people feel better to keep their chin up or whatever. I honestly believe it. I think it's true. I mean, and if you think about the success that the right has had over you know the past uh, half century plus, I mean, Barry Goldwater lost the Republican nomination in 1964 uh, that, as we know from historians like Rick Perlstein, like that wasn't the end of that right wing movement. That was actually the beginning of a, of a, of a longer term, total re- revamping and shifting of American politics that led to Reagan in 1980. So, uh, those right wing Gramscians, you know, yeah, exactly. Playing so the long game. So people should, should, you know, I mean, we should, we should mourn, uh, what, you know, if indeed Bernie does lose. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. I mean, like, you know, he's, he's not out yet and he's still playing a vital role in American politics right now. But if he does lose, I mean, we should mourn that and we should, you know, parse the lessons for why, but we should also remember that we are engaged in a longer term, uh, project here. And in the broader sense, in the view from 30,000 feet, we're actually looking really good right now. And so we should uh, continue on the path that we're on and continue building the left of the way that we are rather than throw our hands up in despair. If if thou continueth on the path of righteousness, thou <laughs> shalt be rewarded. I'll remind the listener, if you didn't catch our last uh, episode together, that both Micah and I are preacher's kids. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if we get a little preachy from time to time. You know, we're just chips off the old block. What can we say? Listen, we may be walking through the, the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> That's but, right. You know, like, we fear <laughs> no evil. Staff, yeah, exactly. They come uh, from and staff comfort us. Thy so. capital volume one and thine, <laughs> uh, you know, political revolution. Right. It comforts death us. All right. Yeah. So anyway, so that's a nice little prelude. Let's get into the heart of the book. There's a lot. There's a lot here. People should pick this book up. I say that all the time, but buy this, read it yourself and then give it to somebody who has like the right moral sensibility, but not a really sort of deep understanding of the socialist movement today. Yeah. And can I just say real quick before we move on? I mean, we tried to write the book in a way and you can tell me if you thought we succeeded or failed on this, but we tried to write it in a way that was useful both to people who are not you know, dead pundit society listeners and religious Jacobin readers and not super, you know, soaked in Marxism. Um, but also in a way that is useful to people who are 
Dead Pundit Society listeners and Jackman readers. Uh, so it's 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 hopefully is useful to both people who have a, a knowledge of socialist politics already, and then maybe just people who are excited by the Bernie campaign. Yeah, and I think it succeeded. I mean, it's very much in line with you know Basker's book, you know, um, about the, the Socialist Manifesto. Uh, you know, in terms of like you know, I I learned a great deal from that book, even though I've read about almost all of like the stuff that he talks about. I've read about it in depth, but he the way that he synthesized it was very useful for for me to kind of you know it was kind of I think I think you know I think leftists in particular because we tend to be kind of brainy, we tend to be kind of like a little arrogant sometimes. You know, look, present company included, myself included, no question. We're all sort of like, oh, I already know that. You don't need to tell me that. We all just want to demonstrate how much we fucking know when we get to the bar and start talking about topics and stuff. It's kind of obnoxious. We're, we're really fucking obnoxious, Mike. That's the left saying. we got to leave behind. Adam. You know what I mean? We do. We got to, you know, be a little. But, <laughs> so, but like, I think that what's really underrated and what I value more and more is not just like knowing the facts. Like, oh, yeah, Debs. I know about Debs. I don't need to read that chapter. I'm going to skip that chapter. It's like, yeah, you know who Debs was. You probably know how he came to socialism and what he represented and how he want, you know, he was jailed and what for and where and which speech he said the thing about the th- about the stuff and whatever. But like th- how you sort of weave that together in the broader narrative is just as important, if not more important than just knowing who these people are. And I think sort of maintaining that 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 kind of high level of curiosity that the left had in 2016, 17, 18 into the future is going to be really important. Because I do, I do see a little bit of arrogance showing through in some of the left cadres that we're building. I think that a lot of them have gone through the, and they've done the work and good for them. You know, they've done some reading. They listen to podcasts like yours, like mine. They read Jacobin. They know the figures. They know the key concepts. And that's awesome. That's amazing. But that's not enough. Like you have to be able to then weave it into a narrative that makes sense to people, that's compelling to people, that speaks to the moment that we're in today. And and that's that's what your book does, I think. And and that's what Bosker's book does. And that's what every like worthwhile book on socialism and socialist politics today like will do for people. And I'll say what I said, you know, when I was interviewing, you know, your your colleague Branko Marchatich about his Biden book. It's like people say, like, well, I know Biden's a bad guy. Why do I need to read that book? Well, I'd encourage people to read the book, this book for for all the same reasons. I'll get off my soapbox. I, I just well, thank I think you. it's important. Um I do. I see a little bit of arrogance and a little bit of anti-intellectualism cropping up in some sectors of uh, of the left. I do. Um, I think that's part of the learning curve, though, isn't it? You get well, to the- yeah, but and, and we, people should just remember that that's the path to marginalization, not to mass yeah. politics. Right. Yeah. And I think I think that's part of that learning curve, right? Where like you get to the point where you think you know it all, and then you break out of that and you realize like, holy shit, there's a whole universe of stuff out here that I don't know. Um, we'll get there. We'll get there. I'm confident. So let's talk about the framing of the book. First, you talk about Bernie Sanders, the man, and his history. And but you, you do that by way of weaving in some history with, you know, Eugene Debs, who's a man who is not unlike Sanders in, in many, many ways. And Sanders has very conscientiously modeled his political career after Debs. So maybe we could talk about both of those guys kind of, you know, um, together, weaving their lives and their paths together. That was something that you and Megan seemed to think was very important. Yeah, we do that uh, a little bit in that chapter. Somebody really should write a uh, kind of joint biography of Debs and Bernie. I mean, that would be something that would be worth reading. Um, but I mean, that chapter in in you know beyond just Debs, I mean, it's about a kind of capsule biography of Bernie's life, but weaving it in with uh, the movements of you know the, the movements that preceded him and the movements of his day, and talking about 
how he was both a product of those movements at some times, and then also how he sort of managed to stand outside of the, uh, the tides of history at other times. I mean, you know, he was born, uh, in, uh, Brooklyn, you know, in the great depression. Uh, we, we noted that he was born, uh, right at, uh, just a few miles, uh, away from the, uh, socialist, uh, house member, uh, oh man, whose name is not coming to me, but the, uh, Vito Marcantonio. Vito, yeah, yeah Vito sorry. something. Yeah. The, uh, from East Harlem. Uh, and he, you know, he's born to Jewish immigrant parents or, or one parent who's a Jewish immigrant, another who's a, a, a child of Jewish immigrants, which of course plays this key role in American radicalism since the beginning, or at least for, you know, a century or more, a century and a half. Um, and he, as people probably know, you know, product of, of, of uh, not quite poverty, but of, you know, tight, uh, a family with tight finances. And then he goes off to college. And uh, the two most important parts of his life uh, are one, uh, his, his politicization, I should say, are one, participating in the civil rights movement, which is, of course, the most important social movement maybe in all of American history. Uh, and two, his political education through the Young People's Socialist League. And I think that's really instructive, both participation in what, what what's popping off in society at the time, in his case, the civil rights movement, and getting that kind of basic socialist political education uh, through YPSL. Uh, and I think both of those things really shaped the rest of his life going forward, even though, uh, you know, he, he never joined a socialist organization again after YPSL. Um but they they really gave him the the kind of political instincts that that he has carried with him, you know, half a century later. I think in in response to your question about Eugene Debs, I mean, he certainly saw in Debs the what you know biographers like Nick Salvatore and and others always highlight about Debs, which is that socialism was seen as this kind of foreign. European scary thing, you know, that, that immigrants you know, were bringing to the U S and we all know that we don't, we don't want immigrants and we don't want, you know, the scary foreign ideologies. And, uh, of course, all of that is based in xenophobia and all kinds of bad stuff. But, uh, what was really unique about Debs was that he spoke about radicalism. He spoke about socialism in, in indigenous, you know, American tones. He, he, uh, you know, would speak about, the constitution and like American values, like freedom of assembly and all that kind of stuff. Um, he, he spoke in a way that really resonated with Americans. And I think that that has, that shaped uh, Bernie and shaped how he has gone about his political career uh, in a way where he, he, he tailors his message to the specificities of, of America uh, without, you know, compromising and without you know falling into uh you know american chauvinism or whatever uh and that is really essential to uh what we what all of us need to how we need to approach socialism and building the socialist movement in the united states uh going forward uh and so yeah so we talk about uh after he has these experiences of politicization through the civil rights movement and through the young people's socialist league uh, after that, he sort of stands outside the tides of history because that's when the left starts to recede. And this, the larger story of the left is that there were many people who in the 60s and early 70s were really on fire for the civil rights movement and for the anti-war movement, student movement, other causes. Uh, but then 
either drifted away from politics as the as the upsurges in American society uh, receded, uh, you know, or became like uh, you know they went and joined a commune somewhere, or they sort of retreated from uh, American life. Uh, and did sort of prefigurative stuff, or they stayed involved in politics but drifted to the right along with the rest of society. And what's unique about Bernie, of course, is that he didn't do that. And you know, we go through all the highlights. I mean, his time in uh, uh, as mayor of Burlington, which uh, I try to hit the the highlights of his mayoralty. But if po- folks haven't read his first memoir, Outsider in the White House, uh, it's a really incredible book that talks about the incredible stuff that Bernie did as mayor of Burlington. That's very instructive for. Uh, people who are left elected officials or vying to be left elected officials today. Everything from filling potholes to using his office to fight the uh, Reagan administration's intervention in Central America uh, to a million other things. So um, highly recommended going through that history. Uh, but yeah, then his time in the House, his time in the Senate, and and bringing us up to the the present moment. Uh, in, a, in a way, I mean, one of the main lessons I take from him is the sort of uh, I mean, we were just complaining about what it's like to be a what it was like to be a, a millennial in the early 2000s or whatever. But this guy like saw through the really dark times and managed to stay true to socialist principles. And uh, thank God, because it transformed our, our politics today. And, and we all today, people who are Gen Z or millennials or, or older should should be inspired by that and should like th- that should inspire us to to have that same kind of fealty uh, to these principles for the long term, uh, trusting that they are indeed morally and eventually even strategically correct. Right, right. No doubt. No doubt. I have also, by the way, as you were talking, I reported both of us uh, just I just did, you know, the right thing and reported both of us to the uh, American Italian Anti-Defamation League. (laughs) Uh, for, for for forgetting the name of Vito Marcantonio, uh, who was a, a, a proud Italian American lawyer politician who served East Harlem uh, in the, the a couple of years prior to Bernie Sanders. So uh, his, something his tells birth. me that the Italian American anti defamation people are not, are not real hype on uh, you know defending Vito Marcantonio. What? Legacy. Are you serious? No, come on. But he's Italian American. What are you saying? I don't understand why they wouldn't. That doesn't make sense to me. It's anyway. Tony Soprano was right. That's all I'm saying. Uh, anyway. Pardon the interruption, folks, but just like Grandpa Bernie, I am asking you once again for your financial support. DPS has been on the airwaves now for three years. It's kind of hard to believe. In a sense, it feels like I just started. and In another sense, it feels like I've been doing this for the past decade or more. But I'm not going to lie. It has been a struggle almost the entire three years that I've been doing this, you know, uh, I'll, I'll call up the words of my friend and fellow podcaster, Michael Brooks. He had me on his show when, when his show first started, he had me on his show and I was in Brooklyn and he said, you know, I listened to your show and, and I loved it. And it's like really intense. It's really deep and there's really nothing else out there like it. But I thought to myself, like, who the hell is going to listen to this? And how is he going to survive as a podcast host? (laughs) It's such a niche audience that you're going for is what he said you know that was that was like uh eight to ten months in dps and uh and he was right you know he's had a lot of success i haven't had the success that he's had uh this is a very niche podcast and if you're listening to this you are probably among the select few of diehard progressive and democratic socialist cadres who really love that long form you like to go in deep and you want to expand your knowledge base 
and you want to think more uh, seriously, more in a more sophisticated way about strategy and tactics and history and theory and politics. And um, that's not for everybody. Uh, but it is important that if it is for you and you're in the financial place to do so in this crisis that we're facing right now to support this project and other projects out there like it. I know it's a little self-serving for me to say so, but there aren't really any other podcasts out there like DPS. There are a lot of great podcasts out there, but none exactly like DPS. And uh, I'm going to continue swimming against the current. (laughs) I'm going to continue doing the unpopular thing and saying the unpopular thing. I'm going to continue seeking out that niche audience, those budding socialist cadres who are thirsty for uh, more in-depth takes. We're going to resist the predominant trends out there, and we're going to keep doing what I think is the right thing, the important thing. Uh, but the only way to do that is with your support. So head over to patreon.com slash pundits and become a subscriber today. You've been getting these podcast episodes buzzed directly into your eardrums for free for the last three years. So pay it forward and become a patron today. Uh, we got to support this socialist media ecosystem into the future if this Bernie wave is going to continue and transmogrify into something more powerful, more successful, with better prospects to come in the future. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And back to the interview with Micah Utrecht. Uh, so, yeah, moving along. I, this is all really important contextual stuff. Let's get to, let's get to, you know, the, we've talked about Bernie, you know. Uh, let's, talk, let's talk, let's get to the bigger than Bernie. Because that's what the rest of the book is really dedicated to, sort of weaving, you know, the Bernie Sanders moment into the kind of analysis and strategy that you guys are trying to bring to the mainstream, which a lot of us will recognize as just good old bread and butter democratic socialism. But it hasn't always been that way, you know, and, and, and you want to know, you want to know how I know it hasn't always been that way, Micah? You're going to love this shit. You ready? If people think that, like, you know, socialism American style is not controversial, just wait for the 4th of July. When your uh, boss and uh, editor, uh, you know, Baskar Sankara, <laughs> the most patriotic man I know, chooses to repost for like the, the 12th consecutive year, right? A series of speeches by Frederick Douglass and Debs and others as to why it is they are proud to be both socialists and Americans and, 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 and watch the dust up. The gnashing of teeth that emerges from some sectors of the left over the fact that, ah, the man, you know, the the publisher of Jacobin magazine has fallen prey to social fascism and American (laughs) chauvinism because he dares to be like happy with, you know, the people who like are by, you know, mostly by chance of birth are, you know, destined and doomed to live in this country of ours. You know, Um, it's a controversial thing on the left. But the fact that we can even say this openly amongst like, you know. Um, you know, fellow, fellow thinking people is a, is a big, it's a big improvement. And that certainly doesn't mean that we don't have to be, you know, question, we don't have to question the activities of our government as Bernie Sanders has many, many times over the course of his year of his years in, in power. And he's eating, he's still eating shit from it, you know, El Salvador and, uh, Nicaragua and some of the other things he said about Venezuela and Cuba, of course, Cuba, um, you know, peace appeared in Jacobin by, uh, Ben Burgess. Ben Burgess. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't forget his name. I almost said, when was last? I was trying to think. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago, but it was about a month ago. Ben Burgess uh, just wrote a great piece on Cuba and how they're completely running laps around the U.S. in response. Anyway, we could go on and on and on about that. Let's talk about something that is just as controversial, or at least it was recently, 
as uh, being semi-patriotic as a socialist on Independence Day. That is the title of your second chapter, Class Struggle at the Ballot Box. What do you mean by class struggle electoral politics? And convince me that you're not a revisionist, sock them piece of crap. (laughs) I think the only people who uh, are really, you know, still saying things like that, that's a pretty minute number of people who are still making that argument. Um, But I mean, in, in some ways, the argument comes from we, we make a nod to those kind of people who think that electoral politics are a total waste of time uh, because there are real pitfalls to using electoral uh, politics. And there are many people with left politics over the years who have engaged in the electoral realm and uh, have uh, you know been captured by the halls of power and moved rightward. I mean, there are people who call the you know, uh, engagement with the Democratic Party, you know, saying that the party is the graveyard for uh, self-organized movements of the working class are not totally wrong. I mean, there are real problems with the Democratic Party. We have a whole chapter on that. Uh, but the argument is that we have seen through Bernie and then through others who have come in his wake that there is a different way of doing electoral politics, what we call class struggle electoral politics. Uh, doing electoral politics that uh, has a level of independence from the Democrats, uh, you know, because the Democrats are not, as, as your list- listeners may know, are not real hype on class struggle. Uh, so there's a level of independence from the Democrats, and it's a way of doing politics that, uh, you know, heightens class consciousness, that identifies class enemies that are out there, um, that identifies the barriers towards achieving things like uh, Medicare for all or, or uh, you know, uh, pre-public college for all or whatever, um, but, but uses electoral politics to raise people's expectations uh, and to increase the level of class struggle that we have in society, not less. And I think you, you certainly see that from Bernie, not just in his rhetoric, although the rhetoric is important, the rhetoric about how, you know, billionaires are not your friends. I mean, you know, identifying who our class enemies are, but also using campaign infrastructure to mobilize for class struggle purposes, to get people out onto picket lines when workers are on strike or when there are immigrant rights protests that are happening or any of the other kind of street level actions that are out there. Um, you know, Bernie, especially before the primaries started, was using his campaign infrastructure to do exactly that. Um, and so I think we've seen through his campaign that you can do electoral politics in such a way that increases the level of class struggle in society, not decreases it. Right. And I mean, you mentioned that what what these class struggle oriented electoral pol- you know, politicians are able to do is draw some lines, right? Some uncomfortable lines. Not not only for the Republicans in power in the Senate and, and the executive, of course, but also for their fellow Democrats. You know, you write about the uh, Sanders and his Stop Bezos Act and his Stop Walmart Act in 2018, and, and more presently putting pressure on pharmaceutical industry, you know, pharmaceutical companies, and all the rest of them. And and what that does, even though you know he may not have any legislative victories. You know that stem immediately from that. What it does is it draws a line in the sand, and it, and it forces a question of which side are you on. You know, I talked about this extensively with a number of people um, when his his labor policy came out. You know, uh, several months ago, um, it's it's basically forcing a debate that's that's long overdue in the labor movement about which side are you on. You know, this is unequivocally and obviously good for us, and you know, you guys write about that as well. Um, so, you know, 
it sounds to me like you guys are taking the approach, which I think is like long overdue, which is like instead of just like giving a blanket yay or nay, you know, wither electoral politics, you guys are looking at the the more specific kind of nuances of what can and can't be accomplished. Uh, but also with, you know, keeping an eye to to the limits of that project. Um, you know, you guys and particularly, I'm sure Megan contributed a lot of this stuff talking about the experience of East Bay DSA and their their campaign with uh, Jovanka Beckles going up against Bucky, uh, Buffy Wicks, who is sort of the, the, the very um, uh, kind of personification of the kind of triangulist establishment wing of the Democratic Party. Um, I've had Megan tell that story on the air before, so we'll skip that one. But what are some of the other kind of stories and things that you guys focus on in, in sort of making that more nuanced case for engaging in class struggle electoral politics? Yeah, well, we have a chapter that is sort of laying out the principles of what class struggle electoral politics, what good socialist electoral politics should look like. And then we have the next chapter, which is a, a case study chapter. The Javanka story is interesting just because it's a campaign that lost. And so Megan, yeah, Megan wrote that section and it was about what, how these kinds of campaigns can be useful, uh, even when they end up losing, what kind of organizing infrastructure they can create and, uh, you know, what can come out of, uh, losing in, in the right way. Um, and then we, you know, I, I wrote the section on Chicago, uh, as well as the section on New York, uh, talking, you know, in Chicago where we have half a dozen, uh, DSA members who are on the city council. And there are people who, uh, have come out of, and they're not just DSA members. There are also products of, other working class struggles in the city, uh, most notably the Chicago Teachers Union strikes over the last decade. Uh, you know, though that strike, uh, as I write in that section, um, really reshaped all the politics in the city of Chicago. And now it, it reshaped the terrain that we operate on. Uh, and there would not be six members of the Chicago City Council who are members of the Democratic Socialists of America if it wasn't for uh, Chicago teachers going on strike uh, three different times over the last uh, decade. So um, we also have a section on New York and going over the the impact that even a small number of elected socialist electeds can have in a given area. Uh, you know, in New York, there is Julia Salazar in the state Senate and, of course, AOC in the House. And that's only two people uh, in, you know, one per one person in a body of over 400 people. And then I don't know how many there are in the New York state Senate, but you know, these are hyper minorities, uh, but both in working with the broader working class movement, working with uh, progressive unions and progressive community groups and uh, progressive Democrats who don't identify as socialists. Um, the presence of socialist elected officials can be transformative. Um, it can help, change the environment that they were discussing things like, uh, you know, affordable housing in the city of New York. Uh, and we tell that story of how exactly it is that the, the small handful of social selected officials joined a broader movement uh, that successfully uh, beefed up affordable housing provisions in, in one of the most expensive cities in the country. Um, and so, yeah, all Three of the case studies that we have, which are uh, East Bay in California, Chicago, and New York City, uh, are examples of the impact that socialists can have, that socialist electoral politics can have in conjunction with you know socialist street-level organizing, as well as the broader working-class movement, and how that can transform our politics and actually you know put, put numbers on the board. Um, and that hasn't been discussed 
a ton or certainly not going into the, the depth that we go to about, you know, what what role did socialists have and what role did they not have? Uh, you know, we don't want to toot our own horn too much, but uh, going into depth about some of the most important uh, case studies of, of socialist electoral politics in the last couple uh, years. And, you know, writing that chapter with Megan uh, filled me with a level of uh, optimism, uh, as I mentioned before, at our long term prospects, because we actually have put some things uh, on the board in in just a a few short years. Yeah, it's really impressive. And I think that, you know, anybody, uh, you know, 10 years ago was preaching the Democratic Party electoral politics was a was a path to, you know, the graveyard of social movements and our our prospects. You know, uh, most of those people now, uh, present company included, have had to think had had to rethink that. Of course, some of us came around quicker than others. <clears throat> I won't mention any names, but <laughs> it's been it's been good to see the fact that you know this is now uh, sort of undeniable. Like the evidence has piled up so high that that it's 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 undeniable in a sense. And yet, and yet, that's the key phrase of contradictory contradiction thinking, right? Of, of dare I say, God damn it, Mike, you're going to make me say it. <laughs> I, I'm not making you say it. You're you're good. No, you're, this is you. You're doing it. I'm blaming <laughs> it. You're making me do it. You're twisting my dialectical this thinking. Word, this word does not appear. In dialectical thinking. Uh, I'm, I'm, people, you can't see this, but I've got a nice uh, quarantine beard going. And I'm, I'm actually scratching my neck beard right now as I say dialectical. That's, I hope you're important. doing the thing where you the twist finger. your... Twist. Yeah. yeah, the finger thing. The, you know, the, the, the index and finger and thumb thing where you sort yeah, of twist exactly. back and forth. It's dialectical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but, but it is. But that's, that's what you're doing. Chapter three presents one side of the coin and chapter four presents the contradictory other side of the coin. It's, you know, you're thinking about in dialectical totality. Um, I don't think that frame, you know, in itself really says anything. I don't want to read about the logic of dialectics and keep that shit as far away from me as possible. But in terms of, I used to be into that, Mike. I did, you know, guilty as charged. But uh but this is a model of dialectical thinking in action that's meaningful um, because on chapter four, you say the end yet comes in. Like we have all of these successes and there's all of these – there's all this promise promise in class struggle electoral politics. Look at these case studies. And yet uh, the Democratic Party is is institutionally and structurally constrained in some really serious ways. And that chapter is called The Dirty Break. Uh, tell us about how you conceptualize the Democratic Party and the challenges therein. Yeah, I mean, as you said, uh, it's not that people who have been uh, super opposed to electoral politics and engagement with the Democratic Party over the years are fully wrong because the Democratic Party is a fundamentally capitalist party. One of the real... the real one of the reasons why American politics look the way that they do, which is to say, like you know, far to the right of, say, you know, comparable European countries or even Canada or the UK or wherever, is because we don't have a, a workers' party, we don't have a real labor party. We have this fundamentally capitalist party, the Democrats, in which, uh, you know, working class movements and you know, black people and LGBTQ folks and environmentalists and feminists and everybody. Have to, you know, it's the only game in town, uh, but it's not a real party for uh, for those people. And we get the, those ideas. I mean, you know, socialists have talked about those for a long time. We rely in that chapter pretty heavily on uh, Eric Blanc, who you know wrote this, came up with this term, the dirty break, uh, as well as Seth Ackerman, who has uh, you know who wrote that uh, famous, uh, semi-famous uh, article, Blueprint for a New Party in Jacobin. Um, so we're you know saying. <clears throat> The name, the dirty break, is is in uh, comparison to the clean break, which is like 
the Democrats are bad, so we're going to do a clean break from them. Uh, we're just going to build something totally outside of the Democrats. We're not going to engage them at all. And when socialists talk this way, you know, when they when they point even point to like how difficult it is for Bernie, for example, to uh, to win the the Democratic Party nomination, they say, "See, this is we told you all along that you can't use the Democratic Party in this way to transform politics." Uh, and my response to that is like. Uh, well, yes, you're correct. There are barriers to that happening. But also, you guys have been trying this clean break strategy for decades, and that hasn't gotten you anywhere either. Where that's That has led to a dead end over and over again. So the church, idea that, church basements, Michael. Exactly. That's right. Two the words. That's the only rebuttal you need. Church <laughs> fucking basements. Three if you need some emphasis. And I always so, yeah. yeah. So that brings us to this dirty break <laughs> strategy, which is the idea that basically the way beyond the Democratic Party is through it uh, and – what that means is running campaigns in, uh, you know, campaigns that recognize the structural constraints and the barriers to doing real working class politics through the Democratic Party, uh, recognizing that it's a fundamentally capitalist party and it's a party that is uh, never going to be able to be fully captured uh, by the working class. But it is the only game in town. And so you do what Bernie has done. I mean, Bernie, you know, I mean, Bernie's a uh, particular example of this because he's been an independent his whole life, but he's running for the Democratic nomination. So he's maintained a, a level of independence from the Democratic Party while also using its ballot line. And uh, at the risk of using like a you know Maoist uh, term here, he sort of heightened the contradictions within the party because there are these contradictions within a party who has Wall Street and, you know, big uh, uh, entertainment executives and, uh, you know, real estate folks and all, all these forms of capitalists. And then it has unions, it has uh, civil rights organizers, etc. I mean, there are contradictions there. And so a campaign like his helps heighten those contradictions because people look at what's happening and they see the, you know, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, the Chuck Schumer's of the world, the centrist pro-corporate Democrats of the world, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, mobilizing uh, to, to the hilt uh, against a, a figure like Bernie, who's just saying he wants Medicare for all and, and free college. For all. He's not He's not calling for the dictatorship of the proletariat, and yet the whole party apparatus moves heaven and earth to try to destroy him. Um, so I think that uh, that's a way, you know, what I what I had said uh, before we knew what was going to happen in this uh, this uh, nomination race uh, for the Democratic presidential nomination was either Bernie will win the nomination of the Democratic Party and people like the Chuck Schumer's and, and, and the third way type people uh, will be so disgusted that some of them will probably leave the party and might, might even form their own like Lib Dems type party, you know, the liberal Democrats in the UK and, and they probably will not get much mass support or Bernie will be denied the nomination because the mainstream media and the, the democratic party establishment moved heaven and earth to try to stop him. And people will have a new, you know, an even heightened level of disgust with these Democratic Party elites who who act this way in the face of a challenge like Bernie's. Um, and so both of those things lead us towards a, a, uh, a transformed political situation and hopefully to help us overcome uh, the limits of the Democratic Party uh, that are out there. But I think that we, we've seen, as I said in the beginning, you know, the clean break strategy, the just sort of plant your flag and say, third party, we're doing it now. This is what's going on. Hasn't gotten us very far. 
Um, but the, the, the dirty break strategy, the strategy of heightening the contradictions within the Democratic Party. Um, oh, and we should also mention that, that a big part of, of Seth Ackerman's argument in Blueprint for a New Party is that you can create a party-like organization uh, that you know can discipline its members somehow, uh, and that can uh, that kind of act like a party without being a name on the ballot. Um, and you know, maybe we're going to talk about DSA in a second. I mean, that's what a group like DSA can play. It certainly seems like that's to a, to a different degree what a group like the Justice Democrats are trying to do. Um, and so that that's part of that strategy is uh, you know we need to build something else. Um, you know, it's not like officially housed within the Democratic Party, but can sort of use the Democratic Party for its own purposes uh, with the with the eventual intention someday of being able to create that workers party that we have always lacked in America. Yeah, well, look, I wasn't going to do it, but you, you you pulled some Maoism just a second ago. So I think I just <laughs> I think you just you just even the score a little bit. So I, I got another point. I got another uh, point to, to use here. But that isn't that, that, like it's not just like so. the, the the way that Marx framed his dialectical thinking was not just about the oppositions of, you know, the opposition of contradictory sort of things in order to understand a, a real full totality. It was that in 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 the clash of those oppositions, like new new prospects emerge in an like in an emergent way that could not have ever been foreseen or predicted uh, at the outset. Right. So it's it's only in that clash. It's only in the struggle that you get when you go into the Democratic Party and you fuck shit up. Right. You mix it up in the pit like Bernie Sanders has been doing for the past you know, 35 years uh, that you produce the kind of capacities and the potentials that you can then use and utilize and respond to in a strategic, you know, uh, rational thought, thought, thoughtful, democratic way in terms of how to discuss, you know, moving forward. And that there, of course, demands sort of begs. Uh, uh, for an agent, right? A collective agent. And that is, you know, what a lot of the rest of your book is, is also about in a sense. Um, how do you foresee, how do you guys sort of conceptualize that collective agent? Cause that's always been going back to, you know, Werner Sombart and others. That's always been the, the strange absence in a, on the American political scene. You know, like, you know, a lot of people have asked the question, why no labor party in the U S why no socialism? Why no communism? It's always been a lack of a, a sort of a, a principal agent. Um, how do you foresee us overcoming that problem? Well, we're, we're old school. I mean, we think that the principal agent is the working class. Um, and, you know, we have a, a chapter that's on labor strategy, some of which draws uh, from the last time I was on your show, uh, talking about uh, that article that I wrote, uh, U.S. Union Revitalization and the Missing Militant Minority, uh, that socialists need to prioritize building or rebuilding the American labor movement and see themselves as key protagonists in making that happen. And I do think that there's some level that a lot of people maybe who are, you know, maybe grew up middle class or upper middle class and, and uh, they're sort of downwardly mobile, but they think, Oh, well the working class is some other more authentic worker than I am. Uh, you know, that's some, that's some dude somewhere, you know, covered in Greece, who's on a factory line somewhere there. Uh, he's the real working class. And so I'm just like a dilettantish, uh, socialist. Um, but, uh, I, I think that that is, the, that's kind of tied up in that old, old, like, you know, check your privilege kind of, uh, mentality. It's like, no, like you, 
you're 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 a member of the working class. Your your uh, prospects are not great, and you can actually play a really important role uh, in getting a job somewhere and becoming uh, an activist on the job, uh, which is one of the things that we talk about at length. We talk about people, for example, in the DSA who are doing that. Um, and you know, this is something that a previous generation in the sixties and seventies did from the new left. A, a small but important number of people did that who went on to found projects like Labor Notes and Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Um, but those, uh, those people often were giving up, you know, like they dropped out of PhD programs and they had, they could have gotten cushy tenure track jobs and instead they, they decided to go work in a factory somewhere. Today, socialists in the 21st century are not giving up those prospects, as you well know, right? Like, there are no cushy tenure track jobs for people to get to say nothing of also, you know, cushy, decent wage jobs, uh, in general out there. I mean, the, the economic prospects are bleak and people have to work. Uh, and so they can play an important role, I mean, especially in key strategic industries. I mean, certainly right now in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, nurses and other healthcare workers have a very key role to play uh, in, you know, demanding uh, that we reverse the kind of austerity that we've had in our in our public health system, such as it exists, and also obviously demanding Medicare for all. Teachers, obviously, we know have played this enormous role in working class militancy in recent years. And so, yeah, we talk about uh, how socialists can engage in those kind of struggles. And as I mentioned, like in a city like Chicago, you know, before the before the Bernie Sanders campaign, before the explosion in socialism, there were a, a small number of socialists who were teachers in Chicago public schools who joined with other you know people who are not explicitly socialists but were, were part of this what we call the militant minority who were organizers in their union and they got together and they said that our union leadership is not doing a good job of fighting austerity and we can do it better and totally reshaped their union and went on strike which then reshaped the political terrain of an entire city and arguably of the entire country so that kind of uh, organizing uh, you know, it's not just about finding the next Bernie Sanders or the next AOC to run for office and win, as important as that is. It's also about people getting jobs and, you know, becoming embedded on the shop floors, whatever that shop floor looks like, whether it's a factory or a hospital or a, a school or whatever, um, and becoming activists and, uh, you know, leading that kind of, of charge, that, you know, helping uh, lead us to an, another upsurge in working class militancy. That is absolutely crucial uh, going forward. That's the only way that we are going to uh, see, you know, the all of the miseries that we know exist in American life actually shift. And socialists in particular have a key role to play in that. Not the only role, but a key role to play in that. Right on, right on. I love this book so much um, because it's, it's almost like, um, it's like a demonstration or an archive of the novel thinking that has taken place, honestly, just over like the last three fucking years we're talking here. Like the, the, my favorite thing about it, like sort of just, I'm sort of perusing the book and trying to find I'm underlines everywhere. I'm like terrible at like marking things. Everything's underlined. Everything's highlighted, which like doesn't help you out at all, does it? But like you're scrolling through here and you see, you know, that just that every, cha- almost every chapter heading, right, is a little piece of like nifty jargon that has been created over the past several years to to indicate like a certain kind of like strategic orientation or a certain kind of analysis of something right even the subheadings you know you've got you, you talk about class struggle social democracy 
which is you know something that has a very specific meaning in the era of Corbin and Sanders. You talk about you know um, you talk about engines of solidarity, which is you know a, a frame a framing that I absolutely love. Uh, which of course comes from you know I don't know probably something Trotsky wrote you know 100 years ago but it but it co- comes from uh, Robbie Nelson who's a contributor to Jack yeah well no I'm sorry the, yeah, yeah well the, the, the idea of the piston ah, yeah, and right, the steam right, right, right. right it's no, Robbie I'm sure you know was taking something from there but it, it's just heartening that we have um, I love that by the way I, I do I, I go back to that piece often because it's such a useful way of framing um, you know the, the significance of organizations and institutions and things um, it's that. It's that like this is all like it's not brand new. We didn't invent this whole cloth, but there's a language and, a, and an analysis that's that's cropped up that's specific to our moment in a way that I don't know that the socialist movement can say is, has that, that that's been the case like since the early early 20th century. Like well, the, 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 yeah, you're you're just revealing the, you know our dirty secret, which is that we just collected all the cool shit that other people are saying <laughs> over the last three years. But that's no, book. but I mean, look, I mean, most of this stuff is cool shit that you guys have been saying. And to be honest with you, I never read Robbie's piece until I heard Megan write about it. So like, you know, so it's um, you know, and you obviously your your own unique research came into this as well. But my point is like it's it's a compendium of stuff not not only that you guys have come up with, but you guys there's this 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 cadres of people who've been thinking very seriously about this, and 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 we we've done something very new. And I think it's you know twenty thirty years on, we're going to look back at this moment as a blossoming, a blooming of in in a way that maybe we can't quite put our finger on right now. Um, but this book is a really great um, it's a good archive of that. And um, I can't recommend it highly enough. People should buy it, read it for yourself, and then give it, like I said, to to that friend who you know is a is a Bernie crat and has all the right ideas, but doesn't really you know read dusty books and has never been to a DSA meeting or whatever. And then they'll read it and then drag them along to a DSA meeting. Really quickly before we go, I like to ask a very challenging question uh, before we go. It's just kind of fun. What do you think is going to happen with DSA and and other principal agent type organizations? coming out of 2020. I know that's that's not a question anybody can answer right now. But I think it's a weakness and all of us I think we all are sort of thinking this and talking about this in our own ways and no one has their finger on the button, right? Or the 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 lever, the trigger. There is no such button, there's no lever. It's just an inchoate mess of of democratic organization. Um we all wish maybe we that we had more of our finger on a button to push so that we could, you know, move this this unwieldy thing in, a, in one direction or the other. Um, what do you think is going to come of this principal agent after, after Bernie? I honestly feel extremely optimistic about it. And, and here's why. I've been very involved. Megan and I both are very involved in the cities that we live in on the national level in DSA. And, um, you know, we write uh, maybe a little sappily at times about how much that involvement has meant to us and how much meaning in our lives that we've gotten uh, from participating in this and the new relationships and all the rest of it. Uh, But it's also been challenging at times. I mean, you know, it's a democratic, it's a robustly democratic, internally democratic organization, uh, which is uh, can be good and can be frustrating. Uh, But in a very short amount of time, in the same way that over just the last couple of years, American politics as a whole has shifted in a really significant way. I've watched within DSA people like 
you know, the political maturation process has just been like on warp, warp speed. I mean, people who at the beginning got together and had very different ideas about how to do politics and were very often distrustful of each other and were sometimes at each other's throats in a short amount of time. Like we've we've gotten past a lot of that stuff. Um, and so internally within DSA, the, the, the group is certainly uh, matured and we've seen, you know, what we've seen, what works and what doesn't in some ways. And um, it's, you know, it's going to be tough especially with uh you know bernie there's not going to be a third bernie campaign um uh, well maybe maybe i shouldn't say never never say never but, uh, <laughs> i doubt there's going to be a third bernie campaign for president gen um, z and- do your part you guys didn't have to struggle gen z like we did okay <laughs> get out there donate your blood plasma yeah exactly to gramps yeah. um, Jesus. but uh <clears throat> but but like we've learned enough is my point that we've learned enough over the past four years we've we've learned like what kind of Polit- you know how we can advance a left politics uh, in a mass way in this country. Uh, we've gained a lot of really valuable organizing experience. We've got a couple people. We have a, 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 a you know a small but important number of people in office. And as you mentioned, you know I was at the the YDSA, the Young Democratic Socialists of America conference in Chicago in February, and it was incredible meeting these young people who are so much more politically advanced than I was when I was uh, you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old. Like th- them in particular, like. Whew, they're they're going to be doing incredible things like uh as as political activists being rank and file militants and running for office and all of the rest of it so um i i feel extremely optimistic about our prospects whether you know whether bernie loses whether biden wins the presidency whether trump wins re-election i think in any scenario um the dsa is going to play an important role and i would encourage your listeners in particular to get involved in that organization it's not always easy you have to figure out how to work with people who you disagree with but like megan and i both write in the conclusion of this book about how it's been the most meaningful thing we've ever done in our lives and we have seen the real gains that we've made as a movement and we can keep making those gains the more people get involved and the deeper people get involved so join up there's there's an optimistic view that i like to end the show with uh, whenever i can there's not a lot to be optimistic about in the time of in the age of covid and the way that the mainstream democrats are trying to marginalize bernie sanders and his movement but uh there's a ray of sunshine, and and uh, if I've ever seen one, uh, just I need to mention this before we get off the air. There is a bibliographic essay at the back of this book that is probably worth the price of the book itself for those of you who are who are like into that kind of thing. And I mean that seriously. Like it's it's hard to always know kind of like where to go and what to look for. And you guys put a lot of effort into that, um, giving credit to the people who've sort of pushed your thinking a little bit. And it's broken down in a number of ways. And I get messages all the time. Adam, 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 what should I read? You know, a lot of my audience, they're, they're in, in, ahead, they're in charge of their, like, say, the, you know, the education committee of their DSA chapters, which I think is awesome. You know, I mean, um, if that's the contribution that DSA, sorry, that the DPS can make is like, you know, sort of educating people who end up going off and educating socialists. Like, that's fucking awesome. Like, I can die a happy dude. Uh, that in itself is pretty great. But this bibliographic essay is uh, golden. Um, people should be sure not to miss that. So buy the book, uh, Mike Utrecht, also podcast host yourself. I don't think I've mentioned that. You know, the vast majority, one of the Jacobin podcasts, really excellent show. People should subscribe to that as well. And, uh, as always, thanks for coming on DPS. Take care of yourself. Watch out for that cough. <laughs> and, uh, we look forward to having you back on soon. Thanks for having me, Adam. And, uh, you know, thanks for having a great show. There's really nothing like it that's uh, out there. And I'm a regular listener, so I'm glad to be a guest. Awesome. Appreciate that endorsement. Thanks again.